the Women in Football podcast, bringing you on-field and off-field news, interviews, highlights, and things that matter about everything we love about football. Crosses back in, Will Yallop get them underway, and the captain, the crowd is cheering, the captain has got them off the mark. Welcome to the Women in Football podcast. I'm your host, Louise Taffer, and joining me today is UEFA's Sally Friedman. Sally, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Louise. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm really looking forward to our upcoming discussion. I'll also note that you're not going to be speaking as a UEFA employee, but rather from a fan's perspective. So how about we start with the beginning of your journey and how you've progressed now being at UEFA? Sure. So a long, long time ago, giving away my age here, as I described the years, um, in 2007, I went to Australia as I received a scholarship to study a master's in business um, at Griffith University in the Gold Coast. And I was meant to stay there one year and return to England. But for a number of reasons, I ended up staying in Australia. And after a few years working outside of sport, I was able to land a role as a protocol manager at the Asian Cup in 2015. And that came through applying to be as a volunteer. Originally, I was applying as a volunteer because I already had a good job that I was happy with at the University of Queensland in sport. But yeah, from my volunteer interview, it, it turned into a permanent role. And from there, my career in football started. So after the Asian Cup, I was fortunate enough to land a role at Melbourne City. From Melbourne City, I went to FFA, as they were called then, Football Australia Now. And from there, I also worked for Brisbane Raw for a little bit and Wellington Phoenix. And then back to the Gold Coast where it all started, I worked for the Commonwealth Games. And then in 2018, I was fortunate to land a role at UEFA as online promotion manager for Euro 2020. So that gives you a quick summary of my career today and how I've ended up working in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Do you think that there have been many challenges along the way? Definitely hasn't been easy. And I guess I was using, I heard myself a couple of times there, I was fortunate enough to land a role. And I really should stop using that word because it's not luck, it's not fortune, it's hard work that have got me into these positions. Because I was, in terms of challenges, I knocked on A-League doors several times and was told, no, um, you're overqualified, we can't afford to pay you enough, go away. Um, Similarly, at UEFA, I applied for three or four jobs before I even got an interview. So... It's not easy. You do have to persevere. You do have to be resilient. Um, And as I say, that volunteer interview, I just, that was a bit of luck in terms of the people that I met at the volunteer interview happened to be the venue manager of Brisbane um, when I had my one-on-one chat. And from that conversation, there was a phone call the next day um, that said, would you be interested in applying for a permanent role? So uh, yes, combining a small piece of luck with lots of hard work. There's certainly many challenges along the way and it hasn't been easy, but we got there in the end. And out of all the A-League clubs that you have worked for, which one do you think was your favourite or best experience? Oh, that's a, a good question and one that I haven't really been asked before. Um, how to pick? I mean, they all have pros and cons, if I'm honest. Um Working for Melbourne City as part of City Football Group, obviously their infrastructure and their resources are a lot higher than the other two clubs that I touched on, Brisbane Roar and Wellington Phoenix. So in terms of having those resources available and learning from a worldwide network, obviously City um, was up there and, and gave me some very good memories as a result of that. 
However, contrastingly, that's why I chose to go then to Wellington Phoenix as an example, complete opposite end of the spectrum, playing in a different country in the same league with seven staff instead of 70 staff with very limited resources in terms of money, budgets and all those types of things. So, um, yeah, as I said, I've got good memories from from all of them, but uh, for different reasons and yeah, pros and cons for both. I have, I'm giving you a politician's answer there, not really chosen one, but they, they both had some, some pros and cons. Perhaps if we judged on the derby, so a, a Melbourne derby to a distance derby. Yeah, of course. Melbourne City and Melbourne Victory derby um, and City Football Group in general, as I said, uh, both for clubs where there is a derby. So you've got New York City, New York Red Bulls, you've got Manchester City, Manchester United, and those two matches per season are huge. And it, it I mean, growing up in England, obviously there are so many derbies across the country and those matches are, and the, I guess the banter between the fans is something special and it can't really be created between Wellington and Perth as much as we try with marketing lines like a distance derby. For me, it's not really the culture and the history of you know, Manchester derby or Melbourne derby is much more. So yeah, that wins in that respect. And of course, you've been to some you know, big games so far in the past couple of months and particularly with, with the Euro 2020 on. Uh, how was your experience there and, and what was it like working at the Euro final? Um, mixed again, if I'm honest, as you can imagine, it's been a very challenging time with Corona to put this event on across 12 countries. Um, wasn't easy, uh, with daily changes to your work, um, constantly doing work for the next day to be thrown in the bin and to start again because of the evolution of the pandemic made it very, very difficult. Um, but we got there, we put on 51 matches, um, with varying uh, attendances at each of the stadiums and varying rules across all the different stadiums. And in answer to your question, yes, I did manage to get to a couple of matches. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Budapest. I saw Hungary play France, um, which was incredible. Full stadium, one of the, the only stadium that had a full capacity for Euro. So 60,000 fans in a brand new stadium in Budapest, absolutely incredible. Um, and Hungary scored first as well, which was, it was as if they'd won the whole thing or the World <laughs> Cup, the way they were going so crazy. And I hadn't been around that many people for so long. So just to see football and life and energy and colour and noise and passion and all the things we love about football was very, very memorable, especially because it had been so long since I'd been in the stadium. I mean, like you and others that are fortunate enough to work in the industry are normally in a stadium bi-weekly so having not been in one for so long it was just so good to feel that energy again yeah and and this is a fantastic city at capacity too so yes um and then I was also lucky unlucky enough to be at the final in Wembley um which was an experience Uh, I have some great memories uh, from that day out but also some not so good memories um as you will have seen on the news there was Lots of good things about the match, but also lots of negative media around some of the experiences that happened outside the stadium, inside the stadium. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like all the negatives from the final were really front and centre in in newspapers across the world, rather than Italy winning. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly was. I had to take a step back almost the day after when 
you know, you read the papers, you see the news, you scroll social media, and it was all about racism, hooliganism, uh, ticketless fans entering the stadium, security breaches. And there was nothing, as you said, about this wonderful spectacle of 51 matches and Italy winning and lifting the trophy, which is the headlines you want to read. And what I remembered from the day before, of course, I did experience, unfortunately, some of those things that were reported. Um, but I had to really re remind myself not to get skewed by this negativity that the media is just drowning us in all day the next day. It was all negative. And it was such a shame because it really did sort of take away this massive emotional roller coaster that I'd been on with this huge celebration of England reaching the final. Like, I've never seen England in a final in my life, maybe never again. To be there, I was so excited, so happy. And then, yeah, the next day I just sort of had this sort of bitter taste in left with all this negativity around. It was quite saddening, actually. Um, so you're on this massive high, and yeah, the result didn't go away. But also, just as I say, the, the constant reports of all the racism and hooliganism and other things made it very hard to, to only have happy memories from that day. The racism was shocking. Uh, like, after the game, obviously, Rashford and Saka and Sancho copped quite a lot of it, and I think it was just... It was unwarranted. And I remember going to their Instagram profiles after the game and scrolling through, um, you know, the comments on their latest photos. So they hadn't posted in a couple of days. And people had gone to their latest photos and the comments they were writing were just disgraceful. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know why fans are like that. I just, the culture is sickening, you know, at some levels. And you think to yourself, you know, these poor players, they have done so much for the game and, and even their communities. Rashford's raised uh, over £20 million for, for kids' um, lunches and, and, you know, kids who don't have food. And Sancho's opened up a, a football pitch in his local area. And I believe Saka's doing some, you know, community work as well. So it's not like they're bad people, but suddenly they become villains in the eyes of the football fans, which is just... Again, as you say, it's highlighting, um, you know, that real dark, uh, you know, the dark energy in, in, the, in the football fans and, and at that final, which, yeah, it, it was quite, quite shocking, to be honest. Yeah, sadly, I mean, we've been talking about racism for so long. We've been seeing players take the knee. We've been seeing equal game, respect messages, anti-discrimination messages from UEFA. Uh, players getting punished, fans getting punished, yet still uh, the biggest match we've seen in a long time, the biggest thing that's being reported the day after is, as you said, around this topic. And, you know, we say they're football fans. They're not fans in my eyes. Anyone that does that should not be ever allowed anywhere near a stadium. Mm. It's horrible. Um, and sadly, it's not the only issue. I think sexism maybe wasn't highlighted as much throughout the media, but there's been a few articles published by females that attended the match. And I can really relate to some of the issues that they highlighted around that topic too. Um, and yeah, that's sad, you, very sad. Were you able to share some of your experiences from the, the final that you kind of came across sure. and were subject to? So on arrival at Wembley five hours or so before kickoff, uh, Wembley Way, as many of you will have seen on the news, sort of the 200 metres that leads up to the stadium, was already an absolute chaotic carnage, almost 
I don't know how I, I describe it to my friends as animals that had been unleashed. It was insane. I've been I've seen football all around the world and I had never ever seen anything like this in my life. You couldn't see the pavement. It was covered in cans, bottles. Guys, unfortunately, were using it as a toilet, uh, drink everywhere. You were sticking to the floor. Uh, it was really quite, uh, as I say, never seen anything like it in my life. Um, and a little bit scary. Um, and I'm not, I'm not one to be scared. But there were bottles going flying. There were street cones going flying. There were, uh, my brother got a football in the face, a heavy leather football that someone kicked up into the crowd that just we didn't see. And fell um so it was dangerous it was dangerous and it was a little bit scary i'd say you know 70 80 percent of people there were having fun and, and enjoying it and and just singing and, and soaking up the atmosphere but there were a number of times um where it was it was clearly getting out of control and this was a long time before the match even started now in terms of my own personal experiences of how i felt unsafe i guess or annoyed was on three different occasions I had guys approach me. Um, one was on the way into Wembley, just on that Wembley ways. Very drunk guy, put his arms around me, gave me a big wet slobbery kiss on the neck and asked for a photo. Um, he was drunk, he didn't mean any harm by it, but it's not okay. But I just took, we had a photo and I wished him well and I hope that he enjoyed the match and off he went. Then it happened again on the concourse um, for a second time, another random guy, similar situation. Can I have a photo? It's a big wet kiss. Um, and then the third time it happened was inside the stadium. And I think subconsciously I was moving away, trying to stop this from happening. Like the first one was outside. Then I said to my brother, let's go inside the stadium enough now. And then inside the stadium, it happened on the concourse. Then let's go and sit in our seats. I'm safe there. And then let's have a photo with the stadium behind us. And as we had that photo, another random guy, exactly the same thing. So by the third time it happened, okay, this is not uh, unlucky now. This is this has happened three times in the space of a couple of hours, and it's it's disgusting, and it shouldn't happen. Um, so yeah, sexism is still there, misogyny is still there, and as we said, racism is a big problem too. It's really sad. It is. It is very sad, and and I'm sorry that that happened to you because. Um, you know, you went to the game as a fan and, and you wanted to genuinely have a good time. And I feel like it's kind of dampened your good memories of, you know, of the game and your overall experience. So it, it's, oh, I just shake my head that that's still happening, you know. I just don't know, is, is it because that there weren't many women around and it was more male-dominated or is it just because... You know, that's just the culture. I think, or oh, definitely the crowd was, I mean, I'm guessing, but I would say 70, 80% men um, it going into the female toilets. There were always guys there because the queue for the guys' toilets are always long. So they just think it's okay to walk into the female toilets and use the female toilets. So Aren't there squads around? <laughs> or some guys trying to like, <laughs> you know, follow? <laughs> You'd, you'd think so. There were, but they, I mean, Wembley hasn't put on an event of this size for so long. So that was one of the things raised in the debrief that these stewards, you know, they haven't had to handle crowds like this for 18 months. Um, that's not an excuse, but none of them were trained. They're paid £8.50 an hour. But they don't have the power or ability or knowledge or know-how to stop guys walking into a female toilet or to stop guys kissing random girls that they don't know and shouldn't touch. Um, so... 
Yeah, I think it's it's sad, as you said, that this is still going on. Why it's happening, I don't want to use corona as an excuse, but I do think the fact that, as I say, after 18 months of nothing, and this was such a huge occasion that people just went crazier than they would in normal times. It still would have been crazy if we'd had a normal 18 months, but I do think the fact that people have been locked up for 18 months meant that the level of drink, the level of drugs, sadly, the level of let's go absolutely loose was higher than it would normally, and that like everyone's barriers are therefore dropped a little bit when they're not with it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I also think that there's not enough males calling other males out. That's what I see. That's what is. People like my brother know that that's wrong and that he would never do that. But, you know, the first time it happened, he, he sort of said to me, oh, he doesn't mean any harm by it. Just have a photo. It's done. Like, forget it. Um, but really, I think what we need to happen in those situations is for males to call them out. Because if I say no, I won't listen. Um, but if a male talks to a male and says, that's not right, that's out of order, you need to stop, then maybe they'll listen. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have the answers. Um, I wish I did. But, yeah, there's so many things that we need to fix and baby steps will hopefully get there soon. I think that's a good point. I think men need to call other men out. Um, I think you're right on that. And also I think that, you know, there there is – Perhaps one positive thing that might come from this, and that's, you know, you, you have these uh, firsthand experiences and you can take them back to work and say, well, you know, you can help form the, the decisions and, um, you know, be part of that decision-making process when it comes to those topics and say, well, no, you know, I've uh, experienced this firsthand at many games and, and I guess this is how we can move forward and, and this is what we can do to... I guess, support women and, and um, you know, yeah, give them more support in, in situations like that. I like your idea and I am very vocal and I do raise these points regularly. Um, I'm really passionate about the area of gender equality. Um, however, one of your questions at the beginning was around the challenges of working in football and for me being a female in a male-dominated world in the professional environment is very hard to and to get those opinions and voices heard and action to be made when you're essentially a very small fish in a big sea with, sadly, mainly white men um, at the top, it's very hard. And um, therefore, I try and I'll keep trying. But what I do personally is I write for my own escapism all these stories, like the, the one that I just described to you, but sadly I have enough for a book is... is what I'm thinking. So I've started to write all of the experiences that I've had over the last 10, 11 years working in football. And one day, once I retire, I'd like to publish a book about what it's been like to be a female working in a male-dominated world because there are enough stories there that will make a lot of people's jaws drop, I'm sure. Absolutely. And it'd be an interesting read. But at the same time, I feel quite sad because I, I don't want your negative experiences and bad experiences to outweigh all the, all the positivity because you have had such an amazing career already and I'm sure there have been some amazing highlights. Um, so hopefully some of those can make their way into your book as well. But I think that you're right in saying that you, it's probably the best thing for you to do is, is write it all down and then, um, you know, these stories have to be told. They can't just be swept under the, under the carpet. Exactly. And it's sad in a way that I 
feel scared to tell the stories now. Like people say to me, why are you waiting? Just tell them now. And I say, well, if I tell them now, I don't have a job tomorrow. Mm. That's what I felt like. I may be wrong. Maybe that, you know, being a whistleblower, uh, you, you can still be employed, but I feel like I really have to be careful with the timing. So I'll keep quiet for now. And then when I feel comfortable, I'll, I'll tell the stories. But you're right. I think that that's given me a good idea that I shouldn't make this book 100% negative. It will send everyone to tears and breakdowns. I'll have to put some of the positive highlights in there too, because it's important to have balance. And you're right. I'm still here. I still love the game. There are many good things about football too. And for me, it's my favorite sport, my passion. And that's why I'm, I'm loving working in it uh, as well. It's not all bad. Perhaps you can have two volumes. You can have, you know, the, the bad story volume and then you can have the positives in another volume. That's a good idea. <laughs> and I have to write two books. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a good, good shout. Keep me busy in retirement. Why not? Absolutely. So touching on, obviously, we've discussed some of the, the challenges, you know, making um, in, your, in your career so far. What do you reckon some of the highlights have been? Sure. Some of the highlights. So um, when I look back to my short career so far at UEFA, definitely um, the ticket strategy, um, which I was responsible for implementing and shaping for Euro 2020, was around, believe it or not, ironically, with COVID, putting the fans first. And that was the name of our ticket strategy, fans first. And with that, it meant that we had, for the first time ever, affordable tickets for the final and semi-final for under 100 euros. It sounds like something quite small, and but believe me, at UEFA to have tickets for a final and a semi-final for under 100 euros was not an easy thing to get signed off. Um, That's when they could. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, previously, they would look at other euros and say, yeah, but Sally, we've sold all the tickets for 500 plus and we'll, we can sell them again at that price and make this much more revenue. I said, yes, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think it's a better message to put out there that at least we have some tickets that are affordable and accessible at a lower price point so that others can enjoy the most prestigious matches of the tournament. And I fought and I fought and I fought to get this fans first strategy over the line. And eventually they agreed and I was able to even get the tickets named as fans first instead of category four. No, I wanted them to be called fans first. Wow. So that was a huge achievement. And as part of that strategy, it continued on to for the first time ever, um, getting 10 fans to attend the final draw in Bucharest. So the final draw was held in Bucharest for the tournament. And previously, again, at UEFA, the draws always been for VIPs, general secretaries, staff, um, very important people, very, very important people, your princes, your princesses, your prime ministers, but no fans go. And to me, you know, seeing your country come out of the hat and seeing which group they're in is really exciting. And fans would love that. Why, why don't we get fans of the draw? Oh, no, Sally, it's live on TV. We can possibly have fans of the draw. No, 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 we don't want fans there. And I pushed and I pushed and I pushed again. And eventually, after 10 or so meetings and presentations later, I was able to persuade senior management to allow 10 fans to attend the draw, local fans from Bucharest. Um, and two of them were interviewed live on TV to promote the ticket sales that started that evening. And it went very well. It was very successful. And afterwards, uh, very senior management staff came to me and said, wow, Sally, fans at the draw. That was so good. We should do this every time. Yes, we should. There should be more than 10. There should be hundreds. Instead of 300 VIPs and 10 fans, we should have more fans here next time. So I hope um, that will continue. So there are a couple of my highlights in terms of my short career at UEFA. They're the two that I pick out. And that's one example of how, 
um, you know, your perspective as a woman and, you know, wearing your diversity hat really has shaped a whole, um, you know, experience for the fans. And it's come from really the start to finish. You know, you saw it right through. And I think that's that's an amazing example and, and hats off to you for, for really, you know, giving it a go and, and making it work because that's quite a big feat. I mean, I know all of the, the UEFA Euro, you know, Champions League, Europa League finals are all really expensive. Uh, uh, you know, uh-huh. tickets go up, you know, to the, to the thousands if we're talking Australian dollars. So, um, you know, to have it under, under that and at a reasonable price for the fans is really ethical of you as well. Yeah, I'm, as I said, hugely passionate about gender equality, but my other area that I'm hugely passionate about is fan engagement. And I'm a fan myself, and I think that really puts, enables me to have empathy with the fan situation and understand that, you know, not all fans have a huge amount of money and are able to spend thousands to go to a Champions League match or a Euro match. So that's really important to me. And I know that surprising and delighting fans and seeing the smiles on their faces is one of the things we can do relatively easily, like giving 10 fans the opportunity to attend the draw. They're going to remember that for the rest of their life. That is so special for them. They were the first fans ever to attend a Euro draw. Similarly, when I worked for the UEFA Foundation for Children, I was working for them in communication and promotion while Euro was in hibernation. I arranged for, as part of um, one of our strategies, there was a refugee from Iran um, that lived in Hungary, Um, And she'd never been to a football match before. I interviewed her as part of International Women's Day to get her story about how she came to play football, being a refugee, moving from when she was four to Budapest. um, And she started playing football and that's how she learned the language. And she told her story. And in that story, she told me that she'd never, ever been to a game before. And then actually in Budapest, we were hosting the Super Cup. Um, and it was the first time fans were going to be back in the stadium for a very long time. It was the first sort of test of fans entering the stadium. So I arranged for her to go to the match uh, and then got her to tell her story afterwards about being a fan in a brand new stadium in Budapest and experiencing the Super Cup. And for me, that was something so straightforward and so easy. And so it was common sense, but no one else you know, after this interview that I did prior to hear her story and that she'd never been to a game before, straight away I was like, she's living in Budapest, Super Cup's next week, she needs to go and we're going to arrange it and then we'll tell and she can tell her story to us. And so, yeah, I, whenever I get the chance to make fans happy, I try my best to. That's amazing. Well, you're doing amazing things at UEFA and, um, and yeah, I think that you'll be there for quite a while. Let's see. I'm not sure. My current contract is actually only seven months. So uh, as a content writer, I've been given a new contract, um, which started the 1st of August. Um, So I've only got seven months on this particular contract. But yeah, we'll see. Um, Hopefully, if things stay positive um, and there aren't too many negative gender equality fan stories, um, Super League stories coming out, then yeah, I'll, I'll maybe stay around. But yeah, time will tell. Well, if you need any fans to go to the Champions League draw, think of me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Louise. No, definitely. I'll try and... I'll write a good um, fan story for you. (laughs) I'm sure you will. Perfect. No, that would be great. Um, Yeah, that's a good point, actually, uh, uh, coming up. With with Corona now, it's so hard to plan anything. I mean, it does feel a little bit like travel and normality is coming back, but 
you just don't know what's happening with this evolution of this virus. I mean, looking at Australia and Europe, they're very different stages at the moment in terms of vaccination rollout. But, you know, winter's coming to Europe in a couple of months. And we all saw what happened last winter. So I don't want to make any promises. But if I can, you're, you're first on the list, Louise. Thank you. What's it like living in Switzerland? Is it? I've seen photos and it looks amazing. I've obviously never yeah. been there, but... It is a stunning country. So UEFA are based in the French part of Switzerland in a little town called Neon on Lake Geneva. It's about 15 minutes from Geneva. Um, Neon is small, 20,000 people, little village with a castle and the lake. Um, it's very quaint. It's French speaking. My French is terrible, so that makes it a little bit tricky. Um, lots, I mean, majority of people do speak English, but you do need some French in situations. And I'm ashamed to say that I haven't done too well at learning it, but obviously we work every day in English. Um, but yeah, sometimes I, I need a French speaker to help me with some situations. It's in a normal time, it's great Geneva airports, 20 minutes by train. So you can leave your desk on Friday and be at the airport 20, 25 minutes later and jump on a plane to anywhere in Europe within a couple of hours. So before Corona, I was going back to the UK to see my family every couple of months for a weekend, going to Barcelona, going to Paris, all those lovely things about living this side of the world. Um, it, it's great for that. Um, and as you've seen in all the pictures, there's the mountains, there's the cheese, there's the chocolate. Mm. It's a very expensive place to live for holidays, bring the cash. Uh, I hear you've got to take out a mortgage just to, you know, have lunch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Australia's pretty expensive. So I got a shock when I came here. Um, I remember sort of uh, they asked me my salary expectations and I was earning quite a good salary, what I thought in Australia. And so I just converted that into francs and said, I didn't know at this point how expensive Switzerland was. And they said, Sally, that's what we pay an assistant. Your role is manager level. And I said, oh, okay, well, what do you pay a manager? And then they said, this much. And I was like, okay, well, that's my expectations then. Um, so, I, I mean, it's all relative. Of course, they pay you a lot, but rent is more, transport is more, except food is ridiculously expensive. Coffee is terrible. I miss good coffee. Um, come I wish over I could send you one. <laughs> yes, please. It's morning time here. Oh, um, Australia has the best coffee, I think. Definitely. It turned me into a coffee snob. I didn't even <laughs> like coffee before I moved to Australia. And uh after living there for 11 years, I definitely love it. And coming to Switzerland, it's been really hard. There's only, there's two good coffee shops now in Neon, two, but it's, to give you an idea, it's five francs 50 for a coffee. I think, I don't know how many Australian dollars that is. I think it's, I, I'm not sure what the exchange rate is at the minute, but it, it's more expensive than your, your Sydney or your Melbourne coffee, put it that way. Um, but yeah, so that's, a, that's what it's like to live here. Good and bad. So before I let you go, um, if you had any advice for, you know, younger kids who wanted to progress and make a career um, out of football or, you know, any part of football, what advice would you give to them? Um, I think I mentioned a little bit throughout the interview around persistence and resilience. Um, as I said, I've been knocked down more times than I can remember. Um, and you, it's very easy to get demoralized when you get rejected. That's normal to feel a bit sad and low, but you have to go again. And as I say, I knocked on A-League doors three, four, five times before I got an opportunity. Similarly at UEFA, this wasn't the first job that I applied for. Um, and so you have to be persistent. You have to be resilient. You have to utilize your networks, apply for volunteering uh, 
opportunities, apply for internships, pick up the phone, don't be afraid to ask what's the worst that can happen, write that message on LinkedIn, write that email. If you get ignored, you get ignored, but if you don't try, you don't get. Um, so yeah, those have been my pieces of advice to just keep trying even when you get knocked back um, and eventually your chance will come if you believe you can achieve. I think you're right. It's always hard work and, you know, it's never luck. As you, as you said at the beginning of the interview, it's always, you know, you've got to work hard to, to get to where you want to be. Agree. Hard work. Um, we'll get you there. So good luck to all those young listeners today. And if I can do anything to help, reach out to me. Well, Sally, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and um, I hope to get you back on the show sometime soon. Thank you very much for having me, Louise. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Women in Football podcast. We're a registered charity focused on eliminating the grass ceiling in the beautiful game. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe. Visit womeninfootball.org.au or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram.